So this is Current Yield Grant's Interest Rate Observer of the Year. With me, is, uh, as always, is the great Deputy Editor of Grants, Evan Lorenz. And uh, Henry is not here at the control panel today. Instead, we have Harrison Dill, who is ordinarily known for his fabulous executive and administrative work, but uh, Harrison is a sound engineer. So if you can't hear anything, Harrison's email address is... No, I won't. <laughs> And with us uh, especially today, uh, a pair of um, New York City real estate distressed entrepreneurs who do business as Maverick. Maverick Capital, is it, fellas? Maverick Real Estate Partners. Partners, okay. David Averam and Ted Martell. So we'll be talking with David and Ted in just a moment. Evan, I understand there was a, a CPI report this morning. What did it say? Uh, prices keep rising, just not quite as fast as they were before. Uh, plus 3% year over year in June. That's good, right? Well, um... I, th I still think prices are up like 18% over the last three years, so that wasn't quite as good. <laughs> yeah, everyone talks about the rate, but uh, very few stop to linger to reflect on the theft of purchasing power that is cumulative rather than month to month or year over year. So thank you for that clarification. And Evan, I saw you most characteristically burst into laughter yesterday upon reading a news story. And I would like you to tell the listeners about what, what it is you saw. And yeah, go, go ahead. The Wall Street Journal had probably the single best expose of this week, if not this month. The world's greatest stone thrower, which is Elon Musk. He's challenged uh, Mark Zuckerberg, the CEO of Meta, formerly Facebook, to a cage match, which uh, Elon Musk's mother then called off. Apparently is trying his to His mother get, called off? His mother told him not to. And he's a good boy. Yeah. Uh, all appearances to the contrary. He apparently was using company funds to build himself a giant glass house in Austin, Texas. Apparently, the glass is quite expensive, the architects too, and eventually rose to the board, and now the board's investigating it for improper use of company funds. But the idea of the world's greatest stone thrower living in a glass house is uh, really something. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, David and Ted, you guys are New Yorkers. You don't live in a glass house. I suppose it's a more conventional stone kind of apartment structure. That was true until last year uh, when I moved to the to the Burbs, but um, lived in New York for over 20 years and, you know, enjoyed always my walks to the yeah. office. Well, this, this voice is David Averam, and he is a co-founder of uh, Maverick, I think we were talking about. Yes. All right. So... Uh, Ted, um, tell us about uh, how you guys got started. Then I want to tell our listeners, I want you to tell our listeners about a great upcoming event in the world of distressed real estate investing. Yeah. So uh, how is it that you two are here today? And by the way, we're glad you're present. Well, thanks for having us, Jim. This is Ted Martell of Maverick Real Estate Partners. Uh, David and I first became friends in 2004 at Columbia Business School and always wanted to do something entrepreneurial, post-business school. Uh, we got jobs. I worked in real estate development construction. Uh, Dave worked for Eastdale Secured, uh, selling you know, skyscrapers in New York City. And when the global financial crisis hit in 2008, we sort of talked about the opportunity that might be before us. And uh, by 2010, uh, Dave gave me a call and said, let's do this. Let's leave our respective jobs and let's start Maverick Real Estate Partners for real. That's crazy. Well, at the time, you know, when you had a job and a good paycheck, it was, uh, yeah. you know, quite a leap, <laughs> you know, at the time it was really the case that you, you look at the situation before you and you say, the path I'm on, is this the path I want to stay on? Or do I want to really go my own way? And it was clear to us that that was really what we wanted to do. And we knew that there was a tremendous amount of distress in the commercial real estate market. 
um, didn't know exactly how to access it at that point in time, but quickly learned that there was a lot of bad debt building up on bank balance sheets. And so, you know, we did what, uh, what two entrepreneurs, you know, generally do is you pick up the phone and start dialing. And, uh, we cold called over a hundred different banks and got introduced to their special assets officers and without any capital uh, to our name, we also started cold calling uh, private equity firms uh, to uh, partner with us to help us capitalize on some of these opportunities. And, you know, interestingly at the time, you know, uh, a lot of these community and regional banks, their files were, were, were paper files and they'd wheel in crates of, of information into a conference room and basically say like, you know, leave us in there for two to three hours and, and then at the end say, well, what do you think? Right. And without, you know, uh, a real background in uh, distressed real estate credit, uh, we were, um, you know, faking our way through this process as we were learning. And, and ultimately, you know, you fast forward a couple of years, we had uh, done a few deals and several years after that, uh, you know, um, becoming kind of the market leader in acquiring distressed debt in New York City, having completed over 180 transactions, you know, it was um, really the uh, not knowing much was one of our better assets because we um, looked at everything from a blank slate. Uh, we had to create the systems for how to source and underwrite and ultimately um, did things very differently than they were done in the marketplace. It sounds very journalistic, um, learning on the fly, knowing nothing, and just making it up to go along. Yeah, that's that's. Well, you have certainly make it up and then some. And what um, Evan and I recall, our first exposure to your work, uh, David and Ted, was in March of the fateful March of 2023, on the eve of the banking drama. And uh, from, from Maverick arrives um, what turned out to be a very prescient and helpful analysis of Signature Bank and its difficulties with, uh, not with skyscrapers, which everyone knows about, the trouble with office buildings, but the trouble with so-called rent stabilized, which is a kind of a genteel word for price controlled uh, real estate and the difficulties of, uh, of owners that were navigating both higher interest rates and uh, unsatisfactory rents. So, uh, but we have news, right? There's a, there's a sale coming up distressed is there not uh yes there is and you know at the time that signature bank failed we wanted to display to the marketplace one of maverick's core strengths which is our usage of data and so within days of uh the bank's failure we we published our our research uh and you know helped uh drive some of the stories that uh came out of uh that failure and the purpose of that was really to put ourselves in a position to participate in uh, this, you know, once in a generation, once in a lifetime deal, the biggest deal that uh, the biggest loan sale portfolio that has ever occurred in the this, history this of one, the world. This is one coming up now. Yes. Yeah. I'd say another purpose of it, too, is just to answer the question, what's in there? Uh, you know, historically, we had bought a lot of loans from Signature Bank one-off opportunities here and there and probably done about 30, 35 uh, deals with Signature Bank. And so we kind of knew the portfolio in general and we knew there were some problems in there, particularly around the rent regulated stuff. Uh, after the FDIC transaction happened uh, and the portfolio, the commercial real estate portfolio did not trade to NYCB along with the rest of the book, everyone was sort of saying, what's in there? Why didn't NYCB buy them? Was it their stated reason that they didn't want to concentrate further into rent stabilization in New York? Or was there something deeper and was there a richer story in there? And I think we found out 
what that was, which was that there were very different risk parameters that the two banks um, uh, were using in evaluating whether or not to make loans into that marketplace. And, you know, anecdotally, it was the case where, you know, you went to NYCB for the lowest rate and you went to Signature Bank for the most proceeds. And it showed in the data, right? We were looking at rent stabilization and comparing the two banks. And uh, on the one hand, you had what appeared to be relatively conservative lending on the part of New York Community Bank and then Signature Bank. Um, their dollar per square foot average across New York City was significantly higher. And then we utilized um, a- another unique metric, which was taking their loan balances and dividing it by the aggregate um, market assessed value that the Department of Finance uses mm. as a proxy for value. And and comparing the two banks as uh, on those ratios, and in 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 both cases on dollars per square foot, as well as looking at the market assessed value, um, you know, signature was up and to the right, and so uh, you know, part of that, and and, and some of this wasn't you know, purely uh, signature banks like loose credit underwriting standards, right? There there were a lot of factors, uh, economic factors and legislative and political factors that went into uh, some of the troubles that they were experiencing in their portfolio. What kind of political troubles? Well, in in 2019 in particular, there was um, a change in the uh, rent stabilization laws, which made it very difficult for um, owners to raise rents in the traditional manners in which they they were able to, which was uh, through... um, uh, improving the units and and uh, and the capital into the buildings in order to raise rents and you know by changing those dynamics and 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 not allowing for vacancy decontrol uh as well um that uh all of those factors contributed to um you know severe uh, it was devastating no yeah. yeah and you know and it was interesting to see like not all properties you know were affected in the same way um, and it really had to do with the spread between the rent stabilized rents and the market rents. And the greater that spread, the more severe the drop in value. Because even though there's ultimately more upside in rents if they're low, um, the market was pricing the ability to convert stabilized rents into market rents. And now that they're unable to do that and you have to project out, you know, uh, these lower rents out into the future while expenses are meaningfully increasing from labor to insurance and all this deferred maintenance. Um, a lot of, uh, these properties just failed to underwrite at levels that they did previously. So you saw drops in value by 10 to 50%. 10 to 50% right after the rent uh, stabilization laws went into place. And now you couple that with a rising interest rate environment where these properties, you know, many of them were purchased pre-2019 at two and a half caps, three cap rates, right? And and so they jumped up to five cap rates after, uh, or, or four and a half if they were like the really uh, interesting properties, uh, four and a half to fives. And and now with the rising interest rate environment, they're now at six and a half to seven and a half. And when you go from, you know, from a three cap to a six cap, right, the, the value is cut in half. And that's that's assuming that your NOI uh, is the same, but it's been declining. So this, this sale gets underway a couple of weeks, a couple of months, uh, whenever? Every time we uh, speak with the brokers, because the brokerage group has been selected, it's Newmark. 
they say two weeks uh, with, a, with a little bit of a wink. Uh, but if you dig deeper, they say, well, when the FDIC is ready to sell it, they're going to sell it. Uh, and it, it's being held up, as we understand it, by, by a couple of different things. You know, you're talking about $34 billion worth of loans, 23 of which uh, are in New York City. Of the $23 billion worth of loans in New York City, 11 billion of them uh, are secured by rent-stabilized properties. It's 3,600 loans. Average loan balance is about $7 million, something around there. Uh, but this rent-regulated portfolio is really a problem because, as we understand it, the FDIC has two mandates that, in this case, uh, are, are fighting with each other. One, to preserve housing, uh, and two... Uh, to maximize sales proceeds, right? But if you're trying to sell uh, a portfolio of loans secured by housing uh, with capped upside uh, and growing rents, uh, who's going to pay the maximum price for that? Well, there's only so many investors that can even come up with a check this big and make sense of it. But at the same time, uh, they're worried about selling it to a group that may be you know, perceived as more, say, predatory or focused on generating return for they're limited partners. And so, uh, you know, I think that they're wrestling with that. Uh, we understand that there's some nonprofit groups that are involved uh, that they're speaking with uh, to try to help. Is there intentionally nonprofit? <laughs> yes, intent, nonprofit by design, correct. Well, you know, in um, the curious world, there is a saying that there are no bad bonds, only bad prices. And is it true in uh, real estate, there are no bad buildings or no bad loans, only bad price? And is there something to do here, notwithstanding all the political difficulties you've described? That's not always the answer in real estate, but it generally is the answer in New York City real estate because of the liquidity that New York City enjoys, not only in the good times, but also in times like these. Liquidity and, and how, like, you can transact in these buildings as if they were stocks? I wouldn't say as easily as uh, stocks, but I would say that even for the vacant building that has deferred maintenance issues with tenant problems, there's a buyer for that. How, how do you price a building with rent control where it needs some tender loving care and a lot of capital, but when you put that capital in, you can't raise rents to compensate for the investment you're making? H how do you price these kind of, you know, buildings that have been made uh, derelict by regulation? Well, that's one of the reasons why we're not property investors and we're debt investors is because that's a difficult answer in the rent-stabilized environment, in the current political environment, there's very little incentive to put in the capital that's required to, to make these buildings enjoyable places to live. And, you know, I, I think the, the city and state legislatures, you know, well-intentioned and trying to protect tenants and create, you know, quality of life for, uh, for, for these local communities, um, come up with policies that ultimately have these unintended consequences. And when these policies are countered to creating an economic activity, uh, it, yeah. it really it really ultimately hurts the constituents that they were attempting have to, to protect. You have to wonder about the good intentions. This is the oldest story in New York City. This must go back to Peter Cooper himself. Um, one of the first stories I wrote when I got to Barron's in 1975 was a rent control story, something called CHIP. Community Housing Improvement Program had a, had a bus tour, a journalist for journalists to go around and uh, inspect or at least to view derelict buildings. And they'd all been rendered derelict through rent control or rent stabilization. So that was, let's see, that was uh, not yesterday, the better part of 50 years ago. And uh, people keep on making the same mistake that it's political people. Do. Yeah, look, and I, I think it's um, a matter of uh, how far they're 
uh, they, they can see, right? There's a lot of short-sighted policies. Uh, there's a lot of um, sound bites in politics that that sell well, but don't work out in uh, in practice. And um, you know, ultimately, you need you know more courageous leaders that um, see through a lot of that and have the clout to get people behind them for more uh, practical and frankly business oriented policy. Let's drill down on a kind of a, a hypothetical microeconomic example of how you go about appraising. Uh, a distressed loan. So let's say uh, something out of the, this $34 billion portfolio, say it's part of the uh, 10 or 11 billion of uh, uh, distressed rent stabilized properties or loans. So you get a piece of paper, it's a loan document, um, it's in default. What then? Well, you know, we are uh, distressed debt experts um, and the manner in which we evaluate defaulted loans is very different than others in the marketplace. We essentially look at um, three overarching scenarios. One is that the loan can be paid off. The second is that you take that loan through some uh, litigation process through foreclosure or bankruptcy, end up with control of the property and ultimately sell it. And then there's that place in between where you restructure loans. Now, most deals, it, it, there's, a, there's a level of uncertainty as to what the duration of a particular investment will look like, because you could end up uh, having a quick payoff. You could end up going long. So is this deal going to be three months or three years? I don't know. Right. And we don't attempt to predict that. What we do is we probability weight those three scenarios. And we say, well, there's a probability of a full payoff at every point, every month over a five-year period. And so there's three of these overarching scenarios, 60 months and five years, so 180 scenarios that you model and you assess a probability to every single one of those scenarios occurring. And then you probability weight those cash flows and you weight them based on those probabilities. And, uh, and then that becomes your pro forma cash flow stream. And then that cash flow stream determines the return based on upon the, the price you're, you're, you're willing to pay. But, but the signature bank portfolio is a different animal because for the most part, these are performing loans, even though many of them are stressed. And many of these loans were, have a five or 10 year paper. Many of have resets within them that are quasi-automatic. They don't require uh, many covenants to obtain these uh, additional five-year extensions. And so a lot of the modeling that's needed for a portfolio like this is really looking at um, a yield to maturity model with some expectation for defaults along the way. And when you're dealing, you know, there's 3,600 loans, as Ted said, in New York City, 5,000 loans, I think, in their entire portfolio. It's, uh, it's difficult to get very granular and evaluate every single opportunity. And so you need a number of heuristics to assist in the evaluation of, of, of such a vast portfolio like that. Even before the signature loan book comes up for bid, you guys said that you um, are seeing a deluge of loans come across your desk to actually uh, invest in. And in fact, I think in your email, Ted, you said that you're the busiest you've been in the history of Maverick, which we found surprising because you founded Maverick 
right after the great financial crisis, which had a huge downturn in GDP, a bank crisis that required the federal government to inject capital into banks uh, and a lot of other problems. Here we have an economy that's still growing, inflation that's falling, high employment. And you're saying that you're seeing the most number of deals come across your desk, even before signature in the history of your career. What's driving that? that that's correct. Uh, we've never been busier from an underwriting perspective. That being said, we're not closing on many opportunities right now. Uh, and that's because there's a significant bid-ask spread, right? Because there's a tremendous amount of uncertainty around the valuation of the underlying collateral. Uh, and so uh, we are getting tons of uh, uh, opportunities uh, that come across that we're underwriting, that we're looking at, that we're making offers at discounts to the principal balance of the loan. But the banks and private lenders uh, from whom we typically buy are not prepared to take the hits that they need to take at this point. Is it that they're unable to take those hits and because those hits would actually uh, impact their ability to go forward as a, a going concern? I can't say if those hits would affect their ability to go uh, be a going concern going forward, uh, but they're at least right now they're not willing to do so. Uh, you know, we're very conservative in our underwriting. We don't think that interest rates are going to drop uh, anytime soon. Uh, you guys may have uh, a view into that uh, that's that's more sophisticated. Uh, but, uh, you know, we're sort of looking forward and uh, being very careful in our underwriting. And we need to pay uh, at a discount uh, to uh, the loan in order to achieve the uh, returns that we want. Are you finding that uh, that uh, that you're losing some transactions because there's so much capital in the market that people are prepared to outbid you? I think that's a great question. Look, when COVID started, uh, there were tremendous people that went out and raised lots uh, of capital to invest in distress situations. Uh, and then if you ask around, uh, you know, people say, oh, there were no deals to do, no one did anything, there was no distress. We were extremely busy during that period. Uh, but we do understand that there's a ton uh, of dry powder on the sidelines. Uh, that being said, every time we talk to people, everyone's still saying the same thing. Where's the distress? Where's the distress? But we've heard this since we started our business. Uh, you know, when we started it in 2010, there was tons of it. By 2013, you know, uh, investors were saying, well, is there any distress anymore? We've been very busy since 2013. This is a large market. There's always a substantial amount of distress. And so today, to answer your question, Jim, uh, I think that we are losing some opportunities to those new entrants to the market, people that raised capital over the past few years. Uh, but for the most part, what we've seen is that the lenders are not transacting, uh, that they're not yet selling uh, these loans. Is this a typical early cycle bit of behavior? I, I, think, I think that's a great question. I think we're in early innings here. Uh, I think that transactions that are getting done today are more structured uh, opportunities, and we can talk a little bit more about that. I think the non-consensual deals where loans are just sold at discounts, that's sort of later in, in this cycle. Uh, I think we're very early innings. And I would distinguish between non-performing loan buyers that are really property owners and want to own assets and are investing in non-performing loans where there is a very quick and clean path to title. Uh, they are bidding up loans to levels that are approaching equity value. And then groups like us that are not interested in owning the underlying collateral, we see our value in um, buying distress at very significant discounts to underlying collateral value, and then using that debt to equity conversion process as a means for creating value. And we don't seek to create value at the underlying collateral level for the most part. Each real estate sector seems like it's unhappy in its own way. Um, residential real estate in New York has rent controls. Office obviously has work from home. Present company ex accepted. We don't have many people going to offices. And hospitality, um, Ashford Hospitality Trust 
uh, just announced that it might turn 19 hotels back to its lenders. Um, where are you finding the most opportunities and are there certain real estate classes that you avoid just because the problems are too big to get your hands around? Because of our niche focus in New York City, we look at all property types and we have opinions on on each one. On the multifamily side, the the free market family, rents are, are skyrocketing, double-digit rent growth, even though you have expenses, sort of double-digit increases there as well. Rent-stabilized multifamily is a disaster. Office Class A, I'm sure you've heard these stories. Class A is doing very well. Class B and C is sort of questionable. And C certainly has become obsolete. And, you know, we're looking at a lot of deals where um, Class C office is really um, worth less than land because it costs uh, a certain amount to demolish those structures. And sometimes there's other encumbrances or, or leases that aren't expired yet that decrease value. Hospitality is a very interesting uh, part of the New York City market, mostly from the, it, it's both a demand and supply side story. Uh, but on the supply side, uh, the city passed um, a special permit resolution that requires you to effectively use union labor to build and operate hotels. Uh, and so there have been virtually no new building permits for hotels in years. It's two years about since they passed it. Yeah. And then you couple that lack of new supply with supply coming offline from conversion of union hotels into other uses. And then the, um, the city uh, housing homeless and migrants. There's about 70,000 uh, homeless in New York City and about 80,000 migrants that have uh, come to New York City over the last 18 months. And um, and and the city is a triple net leasing effectively for multiple year periods, numerous hotels throughout the city, which is taking a lot of that supply off. And so you're seeing RevPAR at levels uh, that exceed uh, 2019 levels, which was kind of the, the high watermark before uh, COVID. Interesting. When you started off, there was a two of you and um, a phone bill, and, uh, and that was kind of it. So tell us about the organization. Now, what do you have to have to generate the data that I gather is your stock and trade and your specialty? Yeah. Um, you have employees, right? <laughs> there's 20 of us oh, okay. today and growing. Uh, another couple of people starting this summer. What we've done over time is um, we have been developing our data in different ways. We initially, it was Ted and I that were cultivating this data. Then we started using third-party vendors to help us aggregate, connect, clean that data. We started running different queries through the data that gave us different lead lists. And um, as this became more foundational to how we run our business, we decided it was important to bring all of that data in-house. And we did so by building out a data strategy vertical within our company. Um, it is uh, currently four people. We're adding another person to the team. And um, what that allows for is, you know, just as you saw with that signature piece that we put out, you know, within a couple of days, we were able to, you know, uh, refine, clean and publish a set of like esoteric data sets and combine them in a way that was like really interesting. And we use that in a number of ways, not just for sourcing, but also for asset management and portfolio management and reporting to our institutional LPs. We've seen a number of very well-heeled borrowers like Blackstone, um, Brookfield, RxR, just hand back keys as um, their loans come due because they seem surprised that interest rates wouldn't stay low forever. 
Um, I think there's about 1.4 trillion worth of commercial mortgages maturing this year and next year. And obviously that's nationwide, not just in New York City. But as you see this kind of wall maturity kind of hitting and borrowers, you know, face higher rates, what kind of opportunities and risk does that present to you guys? Well, I think what you're seeing are some of the really smarter borrowers making rational decisions to give back keys in situations where, you know, the alternative is putting good money after bad. And groups like Blackstone, they're very unemotional about these decisions. They're not attached to the decisions they made in the past. They're just looking forward and they're seeing that it's the right thing to do to, to let this thing go. And they, you know, they don't have their, you know, personal guarantees or things like that, that the, that, that are so common in the middle market, which creates more friction in the middle market, because sometimes it's not so easy to just hand back the keys to the lender because the lender has other means of recourse that they don't necessarily want to relinquish because they don't want to take that hit. And the lender doesn't want the property back, you know? Um, and, and by the way, there's a lot of friction aside from them not knowing how to operate a property. There's a lot of friction in giving back the keys. There's 3% transfer taxes just to give the keys back and another 3% when the lender goes to sell it. Right. And, and then you add on top of that, you know, uh, brokerage fees and things like that, that, you know, the, the friction costs there are, are tremendous. So what you're seeing is a market where the, the borrowers are like, here's the keys. And the lender's like, no, 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 please, please don't give them back to me. Let's, let's figure another way out. You've seen enough of New York to know how cyclical it is. Everything from um, public safety to uh, office building occupancy. Do you have um, any thoughts on uh, the future of this vast conglomeration of people and trouble and hope? I think that New York has this density that's really like a gravitational force that brings, that drives uh, people to want to be here. There's, um, there's an energy, there's life, there's culture, um, so many different aspects of, of life that people can enjoy in a city like this that you cannot experience remotely and you cannot experience in secondary cities. And the talent wants to be here. They want to live their lives. They want to enjoy life. They want, um, you know, they want the best of what the world has to offer. And that is here and that's not going away. And so we are, um, and, and guess what? Like if you are a company and you want to attract that talent, you better be here, right? Because fully remote work doesn't work. And so like remote learning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like, uh, you know, uh, so, yeah, I, I think that um, I think that the um, well, I'm going to vote for you for mayor, David. That was, that was one heck of a speech. <laughs> but uh, so feeling that way, and I certainly share many of those feelings. Does this um, lead you to think more constructively about uh, property types and individual structures that might otherwise not be appealing to those who don't share your view of the future of New York? I think that housing and the free market multifamily space has both tremendous opportunity and risk. But, you know, we're, while we are looking long-term, we are investors that are looking to put our capital to work in, a, in, in the market as it is today. And I think what we see as an opportunity to kind of bridge this wide bid-ask spread that exists in the marketplace is um, offering our, our bank and private lender counterparties structure that doesn't require them to take the massive hits to their portfolio that keeps them in the game to realize some of that upside and allows them to partner with, um, 
you know, the the best operator in the distressed debt space to optimize their ultimate recovery. What does that structure look like? Uh, what are you doing to create a win-win scenario for both you and the lender so that they both can come to the same page? You have to bring capital to the table and a meaningful amount of it. But there's going to be a question of what basis you're coming in at, right? And that's the that's the bid-ask spread issue, right? So you come in at a basis that um, we come in at a basis that we're comfortable with. And there's some level of preferred return on that capital that comes in. And above that, there's a, a split of proceeds that allows for um, the seller of the loan to fully recover on their investment up to a point, and then probably a further split above that. It's um, it's a structure that we've explored with a number of groups, and there's like there's appetite to consider it. We're not seeing it being executed in mass. We still think it's like early innings, and there still needs to be more negotiation and capitulation and you know, and seeing how this market evolves. But we think that, um, you know, different types of partnerships and, 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 and getting the structure right is really going to break through some of the logjam in, in the market today. Capitulation is, is a kind of a stock market or a bond market word. You know, you hear about that um, 2008, not in October, but in January. When will they capitulate? People ask. So given that the psychological um, forces are probably much the same in real estate as they are in securities, what, uh, what are the signs of um, willingness to capitulate, to give in, to yield to the cycle and to say, all right, yours, hit the bid? I think there's going to be uh, a few different catalysts that sort of force uh, the lenders to take their lumps and start selling things at discounts. And I think the signature portfolio could be one big one. You talk about $23 billion worth of loans being sold in a competitive process in New York City. I don't see how banks and private lenders don't rethink their valuations when that sells at whatever pricing it sells at. I think that's going to be accompanied by regulators uh, putting pressure on the banks. We saw it in our early days when we go to the banks and they'd wheel out the carts of uh, loan documents. The regulators would be sitting in a conference room on their computers uh, typing away. And we saw it with special asset managers at the time who had pressure put on them by the regulators to, to sell assets uh, to, move, to move these loans. Uh, and so I think those are two big catalysts that we could expect uh, to force people to mark uh, their positions to market. David and Ted, I'm not sure if you've heard this, but some people in the business describe you as controversial. And um, and uh, some of them say that you are not nice in everything you do in uh, trying to maximize the returns for your investors. Could you uh, comment on this? Is this a misconception or is that people don't understand the way you do but what is it what is it about your reputation that some people describe you as a little bit predatory is that um, just uh, sour grapes on the part of those who don't do the same sort of careful microeconomic work what is it when i hear the word predatory i think of someone that uh, i think of a wolf in sheep's clothing i think of someone who is pretending to be someone that they're not and isn't taking ownership for their actions or, 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 or blaming it on some other factors. And so everything that we've done with our investments is to serve our limited partners and to earn above market rates of return. And it, it comes out of, you know, being entrepreneurs in the most competitive city in the world and trying to come up with a way in which you stand out from the crowd. And in order to do that as an entrepreneur, you have to do things that other people aren't accustomed to doing. And sometimes that involves, you know, 
breaking some eggs, breaking some rules, or or, or at least customs, and um, and going for it. And that's what we've done. But how about, how about an example that uh, that uh, you know a, a would be um, uh, somebody who's posing as a is an altruist or is a man of the people um, is saying that what you just did is not fair, it's not cricket, it's not kosher. So what might that thing be? And let's hear your side of the transaction. I think a very clear example of that is that when these loans go into default, they tend to accrue interest at very high rates. It's typically 24%. And we enforce uh, the collection uh, of those rates. Uh, And I think Cameron says, oh, you can't do that. Oh, that's not fair. Well, this is a document that was signed by a borrower and a lender uh, where they agreed contractually to the to the terms. So 24%, that's a fancy rate of interest. Now, is that a state uh, rule, New York State uh, no, Convention? No, it, it, it sort of arises out of the, the private lending space where, you know, private lenders being creative and aggressive said, well, what is the highest rate that you can charge in New York? Well, above two and a half million, there's actually no usury laws. But below two and a half million, it, it tends to be pegged at 25%. So people said, okay, if I put 24% in my loan documents, I'll be protected from uh, potential usury arguments. And 24% compounded over 50 years would be what? <laughs> this is simple interest. Because <laughs> compound, unfortunately. Um, um, and, and what we saw during the global financial crisis, which was really interesting, was that most banks had default rates of interest of plus three or plus 5% over um, their contract rates. And what they found during the global financial crisis is that they couldn't sell their paper at the levels that they wanted to sell because the return wasn't high enough for the perceived risk that the debt buyers were taking, uh, that, 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 that were buying their paper. And so after the global financial crisis, almost every single bank in New York City change their default rate of interest in their loan documents to 24%. So when when do you begin to earn 24% as soon as the... Upon the event of default is stipulated in the loan documents. And that can be, you know, for monetary or non-monetary reasons. Hmm. And then the courts have upheld, certainly in uh, cases of monetary defaults, the the right of lenders to collect that interest. And so, you know, we've found success in... um, navigating that process where defaulted loans are accruing those rates and we we recover. What is, uh, if I may ask, what is uh, uh, legal expense as a line item in your P&L? How high is it, is it up on the list of your costs? Yeah, this is another uh, differentiating factor, right? Um, if you are a tourist in the distressed debt space, just mm-hmm. kind of coming in to uh, pick up a loan and, yeah, you know, you you don't really know exactly who to call to do the legal work. Um, and so you call a reputable name. Um, you know, you could get into easily the hundreds of thousands. And with a little bit more effort, you can get into the millions for legal fees for a foreclo- navigating a foreclosure and bankruptcy. So and there goes the IRR. Sure. And, and so, you know, if you're dealing with like a $300 million deal, well, you know, a couple million bucks in legal fees, right? It, 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 it may sting, but it's not changing uh, your returns significantly. But if you're buying a $5 million deal, well, your entire profit has gone out the window. And so um, we've learned a lot of lessons over, you know, the 13 years that we've been doing this and we've set up systems and relationships for, you know, having the right attorneys for the right deals that um, truly mitigate that risk. It's, um, it's still 
a risk, just like duration is uncertain, right? The longer the duration, the more active your attorneys are, the higher the legal bills are. Um, and, and you can't get away from that risk entirely, but but there are significant ways to mitigate it. What have you um, uh, found in the 13 years you've been doing business that had you known about it in 2010 might have made you think twice about starting? You know, I, I, I think about um, a quote I read from Sam Zell. Uh, ah, that... R.I.P. Sam Zell. R.I.P. <laughs> That's right. One of the great contrarians, he he said something like, um, an entrepreneur does things that they didn't know they couldn't do. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, that's what we were talking right? about. Right. And so Ted and I didn't know what we were doing when we, stat when we started out. We were, you know, dead set on, you know, um, being successful in New York commercial real estate. And, you know, there were a hundred things you had to figure out. And, um, you know, we spent the greater part of five years, what I'll call in the woods, right? Mm. Not really making any money. And, and many I know, I know that experience. <laughs> and, um, you know, through that process, uh, you, you learn a lot about yourself. You learn a lot about your, your partnership. You learn about what, what matters to you and your values and, and all of that. And, um, and coming out of it, you also have um, a sense of pride of everything that you have accomplished because you've you've suffered and you've worked for it and and you've also learned you know in a way how to be a better entrepreneur right i think one of the things we enjoy so much about what we do is that we're learning every day and we have have been for 13 years how do you spend your days how do you spend your time Dad and i spend a lot of our time drawing diagrams process <laughs> flow diagrams and rearranging the way things work you know we spend a lot of times in the deal room with our with our team but you know as we've grown as an organization Ted and I are much more focused on optimizing the way we uh, we do things at Maverick. Yeah. I was uh, happened to be with Sam Zell in uh, 2009, in January 2009, in a social setting. And with us was uh, somebody who had just lost a billion dollars. And Sam was saying to him, oh, that's, that's nothing. It's <laughs> <laughs> like um, Bernard Baruch, someone about uh, someone about whom I wrote early many years ago, he was a, a speculator and a financial Wall Street figure from yesteryear. Uh, this is apropos of the lessons you learn and of the bumps you take in starting a business or in investing in any in any way. He said uh, uh, again, he was consoling uh, some amateur who just. Uh, lost what the amateur believed to be a meaningful sum of money, and, and Baruch said, "I have lost." money enough to make the average married man go out and shoot himself. <laughs> yeah, so uh, that's that's part of the system of life, right? Is uh, is uh, learning and uh, and picking your picking up your left foot and your right foot and doing it again and uh, yeah, I, I mean for me I get the most satisfaction of of building an organization um, and getting the benefits of all the work that we put in years ago and it getting better and better and better. How cyclical is your business? If you are in the uh, stock or bond business, uh, chances are you've had good years and bad years. You, um, you, know, you ride cycles, you try to hedge, you probably don't hedge at the right, et cetera, et cetera. Is the real estate distressed investing business different than that? Or do you too run into bad patches and good patches 
I'd say that our business is unique in that it's relatively uncorrelated to other markets um, and not completely uncorrelated from the real estate markets naturally, but um, but it is significantly insulated. Um, every investment has its idiosyncrasies and those idiosyncrasies lead to um, uncorrelated outcomes. And so um, we found that we're able to succeed in, in sort of good markets and bad um, in bad markets like we're in, what you have is uncertainty of value, but you also have what we consider to be the greatest buying opportunity in a generation, right? And well, I, well let's, let's elaborate on that. <laughs> um, I, I didn't know that was the case in a generation. So this this would encompass 2008 and nine. You must have heard about those values on offer then. Yeah, because I but, think... But also, let me just frame this further, because as Evan pointed out, this is, by statistical measures, pretty good. Unemployment is uh, still near an all-time low, stock market near an all-time high, and you're telling us and the listeners that you are seeing the best opportunities of a generation. This is really quite a paradox, is it not? Well, I think you'd be able to help me answer this question more fully because as we saw during the global financial crisis, right, rates were up, but then they bottomed out relatively quickly to support the market. And where we are now is a relatively high interest rate environment that's exacting a very uh, significant toll on the commercial real estate market. And that toll isn't being cured by a subsequent drop in rates because the Fed doesn't have the flexibility to, to do that. And so the persistence and the rapid growth of these high rates and the fact that property owners weren't prepared for an increase in rates is creating um, persistent stress on borrower portfolios that, you know, that we haven't seen in the same way uh, as, as in comparison to the global financial crisis. Well, and also, you know, the uh, rates uh, famously had been falling from 1981 through 2020. So that's 40 years of uh, Skinnerian conditioning, right? So even the geniuses of the Fed thought that rates would continue to keep below. Can you imagine that? <laughs> yeah, you know, history rhymes, right? It comes back in, in different ways. And... Yeah, yeah. Well, um, David and Ted, what a pleasure it is to have you here on the premises of the uh, interest rate observation tower. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you guys for having us. Yeah. So um, uh, we will have you uh, back again and talk about the deals. Not only that uh, you are um, contemplating, but you have actually done. And there'll probably be a champagne bottle on the table just to mark the occasion. Sounds fun. But, Excellent. Um, on behalf of uh, the Grant's Interest Rate Observer and, uh, and the listeners uh, of our podcast, thank you. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you, Evan. Good to see you. Harrison, thanks for sitting in. And until next time, this is Current Yield, Grant's Interest Rate Observer of the Air. Music.